So I know it's probably our third or fourth time doing this, but still, like, can you introduce yourself for the audience? For sure, yeah. I couldn't actually, I was thinking about this earlier, I couldn't remember if it was our third or fourth time either, but um, yeah, my name is Eric Huddleston. I am a assistant performance coach, sports performance coach for the Indiana Pacers, and I'm also the head strength conditioning coach for their G League affiliate, the Fort Wayne Mad Ants. Love that, love that. So, um, is it is it like the second year of in the NBA or like third? Yes, uh, just finished my second year, um, and so yeah, we are we are in the kind of the early stages of our off season training stuff happening now. So, what exactly? What exactly? Like for those two years, did you like? Did it change the way you view training in two years the NBA? For sure. Um, so for anybody who hasn't listened before, like I came from the private sector um, and I worked at a gym called iFast for almost four years. Um, and before that, I was in college basketball for a little bit, but but very short stints. And um, when you work in the private setting, it's really interesting because, you know, people are obviously they're motivated by different things. They're they're paying you money. Um, and you're providing a service. And, and if you're successful at that service, then then people are, you know, repeat customers, whatever that is. They continue to see you for as, for as long as they want to. Um, and so when you have that environment, uh, like things are tailored for your success as a coach. You know, they're coming to you and you have Usually my workouts in the private sector were between 45 minutes and an hour and 15 minutes on average. And most of the athletes that I work with were not in season. So there weren't a lot of competing demands when we're talking about, you know, being able to make a, make a performance or a health related change in those athletes. Um, working in the team setting is, is the complete opposite of that almost, um, you know, there are a lot of competing demands and, and you think about the amount of just the, the size of our staff in general, and then also the amount of people and resources that we have in our building. And so, um, you know, you think about, they've got uh, usually an athletic trainer or a physical therapist they're seeing. There's a massage therapist that they can see. They have um, basketball coaches on court. They have skills coaches that work with them on certain things. And then they have strength coaches. And, and that, that's just, that's just part of our staff. There's dietitians, there's, um, you know, we have a pretty, pretty, pretty full service type of, of organization. And so um, those demands compete a lot. And, and so then your time, depending on how a player values you, your time has changed a little bit. And, and so it might be, might be a little bit less than it would be when I was working in the private sector. So when you ask a question like that, like the first thing that comes to mind is just how much more efficient I feel like I am in the amount of time that I'm given now. So I think the things that I could do in, or, or the things that I, I really focused on in an hour and 15 minutes, I might be better at getting those things done or, or, you know, close to done in 20 minutes. And and that's generally about the amount of time that I see with a player. Now it's frequent. You know, I do get to see, there's probably not a day during the season that I don't get to work with a player. Um, but there are varying levels of what that looks like just depending on, on what we're doing that day and what the schedule is. So um, I, I think that being able to really uh, 
really stick to your principles um, and, and know what you're looking for and understand the athlete that you're working for is probably the biggest change is because in the private sector, I had a lot of opportunity to slow cook with people. I had, I, I had a lot of uh, let's test things out and I still do a lot of that, but my tests now are a little bit more educated and a little bit more planned out than they were because I know that I don't have much time with a lot of people. Nice. I totally, totally agree with you. Yeah. Like, uh, last week, there was a, I got a player like come back from the CBA, Chinese Basketball Association, uh-huh. and we do a lifting session. After the lifting session, there's a shoot around. So, uh, Jeremy Lin's coach is like watching the session, and there's like, like 20 minutes of like upper body then we go to like we go to the stair do some plyo then just shoot around and after that he was like whoa nba lifting i'm like that's exactly what it is that's exactly what it is just you you become when you work in a team environment like that you become just another piece of the puzzle for each person and and uh, you know obviously players love getting a massage so usually there's a lot of time invested in that and they they do have like such a wealth of recovery technology available in the facility that, um, you know, their time is valuable. These, these are athletes that are paid millions and millions of dollars. So to hold them up or, or to take any more of their time when really, and I, I had an interesting conversation about this with one of our interns the other day was just that they, we have like a window for learning. And so when they're in the building for two to three hours, like we have a very short period of time that we can actually, help them learn a new skill or help them develop, you know, some kind of motor skill learning there. And so we have to take advantage of that, but we also have to be aware that everybody else from a basketball perspective is trying to teach them something that day also. So we can't take all of that time, all that learning opportunity from them while they're in the building. I love this. I love this. So uh, I'm probably more familiar about like uh how how you guys work with athlete besides other coaches but before I did the podcast with you today there's other coaches asking about like how exactly do you guys work with athlete is it like is it like the whole team work with like the whole staff whole whole like strength coaches at the same time or like is it like individual that kind of stuff can you like walk us through? For sure. Um, it is. It varies based on the time of the year and then what our practices look like at that time. So during the season, um, we do have more frequent team lifts. And really team lifts just mean that everybody is in the room at the same time. So we have four strength coaches working, usually one intern also. And so even though um, it's it's controlled chaos, we have you know 15 to 17 guys in training camp that are that are all in the room at the same time, they're all doing very individualized things. And so everything is coached based on who we're looking at and who the athlete is. Um, And so that's kind of like what, what a practice day would look like, but on our optional and our off days, those are all one-on-one sessions. So days that we don't have practice or days where, where things are kind of open windows for them to come in, those are all one-off sessions. And then now where we're at in the off season, those are, all individualized like they they are 
Um, they're generally not, not in there with more than one or two other players at a time. And, and they're all being coached by a different coach. Cool. So during the season, like, let's say like 15 athletes, is it, it are they going to work with like, are you guys going to work with the same, same guys or it's going to rotate? Um, generally the same guys. So I will see the same two or three guys. Um, and, and that's all the way up and down the chain, uh, you know, from our staff perspective. So, um, it does tend to be a little bit more siloed, I would say. So, you know, a PT might work with two or three guys and a strength coach might work with two or three guys and their skills coach is going to work with two or three guys also. So it's, a uh, you're familiar with like a teacher to student ratio. It's very slim in terms of the teacher to student ratio. We are, we are very, you know, it's the NBA is approaching almost a one-to-one type of situation where almost every player has a specific person that they work with. So I think that that's probably something that, that, um, you know, when my boss first started here uh, in, in 2005, he was the only strength coach, you know, for, for the entire team team and there were only two two athletic trainers so um the staffs continue to get larger and i think that that, um it it has some challenges because because there's a lot of um there's a lot of things going on and 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 the staffs become large and the, the communication has to be really really efficient um but but i think that it provides the athlete in general it provides them with a with a more individualized experience with us cool Cool, cool. Appreciate that. So yeah. is your boss Sean? Yeah, Sean Wendell. Yep. Tried to invite him before. <laughs> Did you hear back from him? Yeah, of course, of course. He said that he couldn't allow to do that right now. Yeah. yeah. So I'm gonna go to the question list I sent it to you, okay? Yeah. And by the way, finally, since it's off season, finally get to see the handwriting again. Oh yeah, I started that a little bit. I yeah, I love that. Love that. Yeah. So, I want to start from the recent post about like return to play. Can you like explain it to us, like how the thought process goes? Yeah. Um. So I think where I like I'll start from where I where I started kind of mapping that out from from a mental standpoint. Um, I think that oftentimes when you work with medical professionals or or people who are um, people who are in the rehab space, there tends to be a lot of timetables given. So, you know, an athlete's return to play is going to be six weeks and we have these six weeks blocked out. And, and a lot like, like periodization for us on our end, um, you know, you want to have a plan and if everything goes correctly, that plan should work. It should work in that timetable because they have experience to say that. Um, but the reality is that, that we work with, with such complex cases a lot of the times and with, with such complex people that, um, for better or worse, those, those timetables shift a lot. Like, like we can have return to plays for an ankle that should have been four to six weeks and they end up being four to six days. And it just, it, it depends on the individual. And so I think where I started kind of writing that stuff down was coming from a lens of how do we, 
how do we make a better decision based on the person in front of us every day and based on the things that we know about that person? So um, going from kind of a, a broader view, it's, it's, and this is injury dependent, right? I'm talking mostly in that post about, about, you know, soft tissue and connective tissue type injuries, but, but what do we know about the athlete that's going to tell us what their, um, what their baseline physical structure is? So is this somebody who is, and if we talk about like infrasternal angles, are they a wide or a narrow infrasternal angle? And then what does that tell us about how they move and how they breathe and, and kind of how they, they fight against gravity? Um, and so working in the NBA, most of the time, because our athletes are so tall, um, I'm dealing with a, with a narrow infrasternal angle. And so this is somebody who, um, usually has a lot of upper thoracic compensation to fight against gravity, but a, a generally, um, narrower pelvis. And so thinking about kind of how I manage something like that, like that's going to tell me that. Um, their baseline structure is going to be more biased to internal rotation. And so I'm going to have to buy them a little bit of external rotation on top of that from a, from a compensation standpoint, um, or sorry, their, their compensation level, their first compensation is going to be, uh, internal rotation. So I have to buy them a little bit more room to move out of that. Um, and so there's going to be some rigidity at their connective tissue levels, probably anterior that I have to have to think about and consider first. And so when you talk about a return to play scenario, like having a baseline understanding of what that person's physical capabilities, what their tissue qualities are, what their movement competencies are, is going to help me make a step forward in returning them to play quicker. Um, so for me, it's about how do we measure these things? And then how do we get them to a point where um, we are killing as many birds with our with our return to play process as possible we're getting things done in a really really efficient manner that's going to that's going to help them not only come back from the injury quicker but also help them not have that injury be a reoccurring thing going forward so we're really looking at what the tissue quality looks like um how does the tissue react to force so are, are they somebody who who like most of our narrow isas have to have a lot of um, a lot, lot of pressure redirection back up from their pelvis to keep them up against gravity? Or is this somebody who needs to be a little bit uh, more pliable at their pelvis and allow gravity to do its job? So depending on which end of that they are, we treat that kind of return to play a little bit differently. And we're always making sure that we're progressing things in a way that um, is is obviously first safe for that person, but also going to be as um as as challenging within the realm of safety as possible we want to put them through stress that either elicits an adaptation or allows us to see what their window for adaptation that is so um how do they respond to force then how do they generate force is going to be kind of the second part of that so if i go back to that narrow infrasternal angle um, those are people who, because they like to find IR for security and to, and to get like an exhaled compressive position, they're going to be people who you see a lot of times that they're doing a jumping activity, their knees kind of fold in, or they'll divert towards internal rotation into the ground to try to produce as much force as possible. So how do I help them get off the ground, uh, without having to push so hard as part of that process? So, um, 
you know, it's things like band assisting kind of their jump stuff or, or making them lighter uh, at the point where they're breaking down. So maybe um, sitting them on a box that's at a height on a squat where they would normally break down in their, in their mechanics and then help having them push up from there. So kind of making the environment a better, more compatible position for them to be successful in. And then it's how do we layer on efficiency on top of that? So now they can they can produce force well when you're giving them one singular movement, but now we know that that has to be produced over and over and over again over time. So then we start to get into more of the energy system work. It's, it's you know, uh, aerobic is going to be your longer duration, kind of lower top end output stuff. And then your anaerobic is going to be higher on the output level, but lower in terms of the the duration. So a lot of that stuff is going to be biased again towards which end of the what what their physical structure looks like. But we're trying to have the tissues, um, we're trying to have the tissues match the the individual and and the demands on their system. Cool, cool, love that. So since you brought up like adaptation. You also have a post about the adaptation. Can you like walk us through? Yeah, let me look at that one just to make sure that I remember what I'm talking about here. But um, in general, I think that one of the more important things that we have to remember, um, and this is true of everybody, but when we're working with higher level athletes, like they're like, you know, when you work in the NBA, the, the, the you're working with the top 1% of basketball players in the world. Um, and there's a very specific body type that is usually that of an NBA player that's going to be successful at least. Um, and so a lot of the times they are, they are gifted in, in ways that puts them outside of the traditional bell curve, right? The middle of that bell curve is going to be where I live. At least I'm a, I'm a very average athlete, but you either have guys that are really, really strong and slow at one end, or you have guys that are really, really kind of bouncy, but, but low force producing overall in, in terms of peak force. So when you deal with the two extremes, not much of the middle of the bell curve, um, they make really quick adaptations, but that's both positive and negative. So um, when I talk about the the uh, their ability to to adapt, it's it's really more about uh, making sure that they're not driving themselves into the ground. Basketball is a physically demanding sport, and and our schedule is incredibly demanding, and so. A lot of times that drives, because it's so task dependent, it drives certain adaptations and we want to be able to undo some of those things with what we do in the weight room, or at least allow them to be more efficient in and out of those positions that cause a lot of that stuff. Love this, love this process. So next thing I want to discuss is also the pose about like the pre-game lift or pre-game or post-game lift. Yeah. So, so this is, um, this is something that, and I think you've had Daniel Bovon, right? Yeah. 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 So he just came out with a new book. I'll plug that. Um, but, uh, this is something that I think is becoming 
almost the standard in professional basketball now. Um, and maybe it was before I, before I kind of came into the space, I don't know what they were doing beforehand, but you have so many game days in the NBA, right? You have a minimum of 82, you've got four preseason games, and then you've got however many games you're going to have in the postseason. Um, those are big opportunities that, that I think are missed if you don't have a pregame or postgame lift because we have the resources too, right? Like on the road, um, we're given access to a weight room. That's part of the standardization of the NBA. And then at home, obviously, we have a weight room right inside the locker room. So um, it's important when you have so much travel and you have days where once we get into season, there's not a ton of practices anymore. So you're not getting those lift days on a practice day. The game days are an important place, and especially when we're stacking intensities. So um, like, for example, having a a pregame or a postgame lift on a game day for that player, at least it, it helps us stack that stress on top of a game that way from a physical standpoint, if, if they played a lot of minutes that night, we're adding um, in my mind, a, a healthy amount of stress on top of that. And then their day off the next day, which is, which is traditionally how that schedule goes is would be a, a off day is, is, you know, following a game day. Um, they're allowed to have that day completely off. They don't feel obligated to come in and do a lift and it allows them to have some recovery there. So getting into the specifics of a pregame and postgame lift, um, pregame for me on my end is going to be very, um, very arced in terms of where it starts out at, right? The, the arc starts low. I have a lot of like positional stuff, maybe some isometrics in there to, to work on a little bit of, uh, you know, tissue quality, and then we're going to really have the athlete try to achieve positions that I think are beneficial for them to um, for them to build on as we get into, uh, you know, a more intense portion of their lift. So these pregame lifts are short to begin with. Um, you know, these are these are less than 20 minutes, less than what would be a normal lift for us. But what I want is for them to restore a position that is that is uh going to be beneficial for their health. Um, so, you know, allowing them to have a full heel on the ground while they produce force, some stuff like that when, when we're going through like a full, a full gate phase or anything, I want them to have uh, a position that is, we're going to build on as we go through the pregame lift. And then we start to add on to that a little bit more of the potentiation stuff. So um, I kind of set a position I reinforce that with the exercises that we choose at the beginning of that pregame lift. And then I want to ramp them up and get them ready to actually go out on the court because usually um, they've got a court session right after they lift with us and uh, their pregame shooting, or it's right before they're going out on the court for the game. So um, we try to ramp them up for that kind of thing. The post game lift on the other end of that, because I understand that the stress that they had was very specific to basketball and created a lot of things that, um, that don't typically allow good recoverability after a game. I want to decrease a lot of the, the sympathetic nervous system tone that's going to be associated with playing basketball, right? It's stressful. Um, the respiration changes, all those things kind of drive these positions that, um, that we would associate with the flight or flight, uh, sorry, fight or flight response. And what I want to do with those is have it be really restorative on the back end. So it's going to be more of the lower level, um, regaining position 
restoring range of motion, controlling breathing. Um, and I want it to kind of downregulate their nervous system when they come off the court. So those two things look very different. Now, that post-game lift, those things are those things don't mean that they're not lifting weights. It's just specific about how we do that, specific about how we load that, what the time under tension looks like, what the foot placement looks like, if we're doing something bilateral or or offset. And so, um, and that's obviously specific to the person, but I want to make sure that those things um, create a favorable position for recovery after a game is over. Those are all the, like I say all that, but those are also dependent on the, on the role that that player plays in a game, right? Some of those ramp up periods, like I can't ever guarantee potentiation effect with a player who's not starting a game because I don't know what I don't know how long they're going to sit on the bench before they make it into a game. We have a pretty good idea of what a rotation looks like. And I might get a guy back up off the bench and get them re kind of warmed up on the side. But if they're not a starter, then I don't know specifically how long that potentiation effect is going to work for each person. So we have to be really good about getting guys back up off the bench in a, in a relative window before we know that they're going to go into a game. And then post game, if some of those players didn't play at all, let's say we have a DNP who comes in after the game and says they want to do their lift now. I really do have an opportunity then to extend the time that they're in the weight room a little bit, really ramp them up and then bring them back down before they leave the door. So I, I might stress them a little bit more to make sure that we did accumulate some volume, some stress and some load during that time. Nice, nice, nice. So, uh, can I understand it? Like, uh, the pregame list is probably like activation, and the yeah. postgame list lift kind of depends, but more like ending the whole day. But kind of depends, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit of a cool down on the back end. Honestly, yeah, 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 yeah. it doesn't have to look. It's not probably what most people would think of when they think of cool down. Yeah, yeah, but it yeah. is, it is designed to kind of downregulate everything and, yeah. and help readjust and, and help them bridge that gap before they go into a recovery period. Cool. So since we're talking about like uh the pre the lift, uh after you get into the NBA, did did you re did you get a chance to like uh really teach a player? how to like uh do olympic lifting um yes and no now i'm i'm always a little bit um i'm always a little bit reserved about a question like that because i don't um i don't want to come off as somebody who's anti olympic lifting that's not who i am but i think that the the way that we look at that at this level is what are the variations of Olympic lifts that are going to help us be most successful. So for a lot of the players catching something, especially with wrist health is not something that we're going to, to, it's not something we're going to ignore. Um, so I want them, we might have a dumbbell variation. We might have a little bit more, uh, uh, we probably lean more towards snatch variation just because I think that that's an easier wrist position for a lot of them to, to maintain, although the overhead is still a challenge at some point. But my guys specifically do a ton of like 
dumbbell push press or landmine like split jerk type stuff. So we do variations that I think elicit a similar effect, but don't have the same risk that, that some of the Olympic variations can have, especially under when we get under higher loads. Like these are things, these are athletes who from an athletic standpoint on the court are very, very coordinated. Most of them know every foot placement and where the ball is at. And, you know, like you've seen players with ball, like the ball is on a rope, the weight room, the level of coordination and the level of skill is not typically the same. It's not, it's not as high as it is for them on the court. So what I don't want them to do is sacrifice the, the intent of the exercise just to try not to hurt themselves or try not to drop the bar, whatever it is. So when you have athletes like like most basketball athletes are, um, they're they don't have a super extensive weight room training age. They have a they have a decent training age. They've been coached by people for a long time and they play basketball for a long time, but their their comfort level in the weight room is is typically um not great. And so I want them to have uh, the best chance of being successful with whatever we ask for them to do. And typically that's a variation rather than a standard Olympic lift. Nice, nice, nice. Just wondering, because like uh, the other day I was asking about my player, my basketball player, we usually don't do like Olympic lifting and he's, he's been to like his, I trained him during high school when he was in Taiwan. Then he go to the state for like two years of like college basketball, and then go to the CBA. So before he go to the CBA, there's like no Olympic. There's only like a variation like high pole or like mid thigh pole that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, but after he go to the CBA, I found out that that they teach him how to like uh do the whole lift. I was like, "Whoa, that was cool!" The CBA, yeah, wow, it, it, it was cool because it, it was a whole lift, and the guy was like two hundred, and it's basically same tall, same height with LeBron, but leaner, okay. a lot leaner. But it's like, "Whoa, that was that was yeah. cool." Yeah, no, I think that you like. It depends on what they're valuing, right? Yeah. And you know, you can't say one one way is right, one way is wrong. But if they put a heavy value on on teaching like a quality Olympic lift, and they have the time to do that, do it. Like that's that's that for me is not uh, is not an issue or something that I would say don't do. But for us and our time, like our time constraints and like the quality that we want it to look like. There are, I think that there are ways that help guys self-organize better that, that we try to implement and have that be something we move on from quickly. Yeah, totally agree. So uh, when you don't have the whiteboard, how do you, how do you like put out these content? Is it like computer, that kind of stuff? Um, Sometimes I do. Like if I'm feeling uh if I'm feeling a little bit more uh professional, I might get on the computer and do something like that. But typically, typically I'm on the whiteboard. I even have my like notebook right here. So I usually oh. write some stuff on my notebook. Anyway, I love the handwriting, although there's sometimes I gotta like I'm gonna zoom out to see <laughs> or take a right. or take a screenshot to like zoom out. Yep, yep. 
cool. So I know on the list I said I'm going to ask you about like the gate cycle, but I kind of want to ask about like the also the handwriting about like training in and training away. What exactly is that talking about? Yeah, so that's a concept that um, I think the first time I heard about that, our staff had discussed it, but it was something that the Oklahoma City Thunder staff had kind of um, maybe brought up to them in in some off-season discussions before but it's the idea that um training in means you're you're biasing your training towards the athlete's strengths and the training away is is biasing the training towards the athlete's weaknesses so um basically things that they are good at and that that from a performance standpoint that they excel at or things that they don't excel at so for me um the training in when you have athletes that that are uh they deal with a lot of compensation in their movement so so everything obviously is task specific and and jumping you know an athlete's not going to think about when they're going up for a rebound off the ground they're not thinking about how do i do this well they're thinking about how do i get the ball as quickly as i can how do i get off the floor as quickly as i can so that there are some some just automatic responses that players have from a movement standpoint when they're doing something that's related to a task. So the training in for me directs their training towards how do we make those, uh, those, those competencies as efficient as possible. So it adds layers to those compensations, um, those strategies that, that helps them, uh, improve their ability to use that compensation. So if, if, you know, going down in a counter movement jump, if, if pushing my knees together a little bit, what people like commonly call valgus, um, if pushing my knees together a little bit helps me get off the ground quickly and with minimal knee bend and, and I feel like I get a good jump height on that training in is going to make me more efficient at that position. So it might bias a little bit more IR in my training. Um, training away on the other end is doing things that, um, that I think at least help me become uh, a, a better kind of global mover, which I think allows me some more movement options over time. Um, and, and there's there's a lot of debate going on about this. I think that for a long time we thought that, um, you know, everybody talked about asymmetry and and you know taking away asymmetry could make everybody a worse athlete. You don't want to reduce asymmetry, and I I. I see cases that I agree with that. Um, what I think is important to remember about this, though, is that there are there are varying degrees of how an athlete like handles their own asymmetry, right? The we there are varying levels of how an athlete uh, how an athlete uses their compensation to accomplish a task. And there are safe levels of that. And there are levels of that that you probably look at and say, I, they shouldn't be doing it like that. That's going to lead to an issue down the road. And so it's about finding a balance for everybody. Um, I think that training in and, and training away, that's like that's an idea that training in is something that we're already doing in basketball all, all the time. When they when they play their sport, they are technically, in my mind, training in. And so a lot of their training from my standpoint looks more like training away because I want to provide a stress that's going to increase their movement options outside of what basketball drives them towards. So um, 
neither one is right or wrong. And there's a time and place for both. Obviously, when you when you deal with a high level athlete, you want to amplify their strengths. If someone can jump out of the building, I want them to continue jumping out of the building, but I also want them to do it safely. So there's some things that we have to make sure from a checks and balances standpoint that we're looking at. But um, there's also the argument that uh, that, you know, increasing someone's movement options on my end, if I give them 30, you know, 30 degrees of, of hip flexion when they only had 15, that could allow me more um, more time, not more time, but I could load and store, uh, potential energy better in the connective tissue and then be able to release that on the other end. So it could like, you're not sacrificing health for performance or one or the other. Really the, the idea is give the athlete enough movement option to be really, really efficient, really dynamic in what they're doing rather than driving them towards being, too stiff and too rigid on one side, which is more typically associated with performance or too soft and too kind of lax on one, which is on more of the health end of that. Cool. I know, I know you talk a lot about like like the uh, joint mobility or the range of motion, this kind of stuff. And I know we've discussed like how guys do testing in the pro setting like there's like sports science staff and there's like physical therapists there's like athletic trainer but since you need a lot of information about like the certain uh certain joint of like the mobility what kind of what kind of, of assessment do you do before like you do the training Right. So with each guy, I might have, and this is, this is built off of an understanding of who the athlete is and then what their KPIs or their key performance indicators are for me. So um, I come from a setting in the private sector where I'm really, really comfortable doing table measures. So for me, my reference point of, of what somebody needs from a movement standpoint comes from what are your hips your ERs, your IRs look like at your hips. What does your straight leg raise look like? How much hip flexion do you have? What do your shoulders look like? What are we looking at from a, from a, you know, thoracic mobility standpoint? Um, and so that's my reference point for a lot of this stuff. So um, when we're, when I'm doing uh, an evaluation of what a player needs, if, if the the pelvis is kind of the first thing that I'm considering because I think it's kind of the root of where a lot of a lot of the the more extremity based strategies or or compensations that we see kind of roots from. So I'm making sure, you know, does their does their sacrum nutate and counter nutate? Do they have you know 90 degrees of hip flexion available? Do we have you know, 15, 20 degrees of, of ERs and IRs available. And then, and then how much do they need to be symptom free if they're, if they're dealing with treatments in a physical therapy setting and, or how much do they need for me to be comfortable with how their squat looks like a squat is a big assessment for me because it tells me a lot about how an athlete looks. And so maybe on certain days, it's not necessarily me getting that athlete on the table and taking them through a range of motion test. Maybe it is just watching their squat and seeing how things move. And, you know, what does their depth look like before their knees start to cave in or their hips kick out in a direction? And, 
you know, what kind of load do we have on the squat today that that would change what I think that squat is going to look like? And then it's just monitoring those things. Really, a lot of a lot of my assessment process is walking around while the athlete's performing an exercise and just mentally having these check boxes of, okay, I like that their like their shin angle and their torso angle are matching each other. So that tells me that those two things are moving well together and they're able to keep heel contact past 90 degrees of hip flexion in the split squat. So I know that, that, you know, they're moving through an, an average arc of, of what that femur should be turning internal and external over there. So there's a lot of things that you're considering when you're, when you're talking about an assessment process, but, but in general, um, I have a mental model of how that movement should look with that athlete or what I need it to look like with that athlete. And I think that I control, I think, you know, if I'm going to like brag on myself about something, I think I, I think I control those variables really well in the situations that we have. And I think that that gives me an opportunity to take a lot of the guesswork out of how I set up an exercise for an athlete. And hopefully that moves them through that, that particular exercise or that phase of their programming more quickly when we're talking about doing assessments on the fly. Nice, nice, nice. So I'm going to jump to the, the last question I have for today is about like the gait cycle. Yeah. And I know you also had a post on it. So can you like explain it a little bit? For sure. So um, that's actually a really good follow-up question with what you just said. So, so for me, a lot of the way that I view movement is through gait. Uh, I think that that is um, – that is for me a really easy way to kind of bucket people and and what their needs are or where they are, I'll say stuck at, but where they're stuck at in terms of uh, movement capabilities. So there are th- like there's three semi four phases of gait that I that I look at when we're talking about walking. Um, obviously, sprinting changes a little bit when you're talking about phases of, of sprinting, but we're talking about walking. There's an early there's a middle inside that middle phase. There's a really brief max propulsive moment. Um, and then there's late. And so that's heel on the ground. Your center of mass starts moving forward. You're shifting like your whole foot's on the ground and your body's over that foot. And then that foot is behind you. So those are early heel down. Your calcaneus hits the ground. Um, your center of mass moves over that foot. That's middle. And then your center of mass moves ahead of that foot. That's late. And so, when I do something like a table measure with somebody, if I'm getting, um, if I'm doing a straight leg raise, so I'm, you know, they're laying supine, I'm, I'm late raising their leg up almost like a hamstring stretch. Um, if they're not getting 30 degrees of that straight leg raise for me, that tells me that like, there's a lot of other things that go into this, but that tells me um, to a degree that they are stuck in that late phase of propulsion on that side. So you almost reverse engineer everything and say, okay, the deeper levels of hip flexion that I can get, the more that I can pass through all three phases, the less that I can get, the more I am forward. And so when you deal with athletes that, that move forward in their sport, which is basically all of them, I can't think of a sport where you do a lot of backwards motion, but they tend to get stuck in the positions that drive them forward more often. So we talk about you know, extension-based strategies where athletes are 
their scaps are really pulled together, their thoracic spine is extended forward. And, and they, that for me, when I look at that gait cycle, that tells me, okay, their center of mass is almost always going to be directly over their foot or somewhere forward of that. So it tells me that they're stuck in that middle propulsive phase or the late propulsive phase. Middle propulsion for me means that uh, middle propulsion is driving force into the ground. So when we talk about that max propulsive moment, the heel's coming off the ground and it's about as IR'd on that side of the body. So if we're talking about the right foot hitting the ground, it's about as IR'd on that side of the body as you can be, which is really compressive. It's it's a very stiff and rigid position to be in because they're single leg weight bearing and all of that force is going into the ground. It has to be rigid, right? Like otherwise they would just collapse to the floor. So I assess based on what that looks like from a gait standpoint. And that because gait is obviously very asymmetrical, both sides could look the same. Both sides could look different because both are doing different things when you're walking. And so I need to understand where they are in that cycle, where they where they're getting stuck at, and then bring them back in a position that I think allows them to move back forward. So again, it's just reverse engineering that there are very few athletes that um, are good at getting their heel down on the ground when they do a braking or a deceleration type exercise. And so for a lot of them, that's that means my training has to bring them to that early phase of propulsion that allows heel contact and allows their center of mass to shift back behind their front foot. So um, that is really, for me, just been a, a, a very solid principle for me to see how movement occurs and to see where I need to be making changes at um, with that athlete. Because um, we've talked about efficiency. I've said efficiency a hundred times in this already. And for them to efficiently store and release energy, they have to move through all three of those phases. Otherwise, I'm putting stress, the further forward my mass is shifted over that foot, I'm putting stress on those anterior tissues. And that's when you start to have patellar tendinopathy issues, you start to have quad tendinopathy issues. And so if I can help shift their center of mass back, I can help take some of the stress off that anterior tissue and hopefully allow them to store and release things that make them more efficient, more athletic, um, and healthier in the long run. So gait is a really, really important piece of what I do and how I view athletic movement and, and training athletic movement. Nice. 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 Love that. So awesome. basically that's kind of like all the questions I have for the day. So if there's like coaches or therapists are interested in what we are talking about today, where can they find the post? Where can they find the handwriting? And where for can they sure. find you? For sure. Um, Instagram is my biggest one. Um, I That's really where I post everything. Um, I repost on a lot of other sites like Twitter and, and maybe LinkedIn, but um, Instagram is the biggest one. My handle is EPH period two four. Um, everybody like that. That's generally where uh, people reach out to me the most. And, and I take a lot of questions on there. So um Obviously, if anybody has any questions from this or, or wants to talk more, just talk shop in general, hit me up on Instagram. Nice. Nice. <laughs>